two WCB Newsline Unleashed. This is the meeting of WCB Governmental Affairs Committee and others who are joining us tonight. We do have a very special program tonight uh, discussing the new transportation plan that's out there. Um, but before we do that, let's just go around and say who we are because Barb and Larry are not going to know all of us. So I'll start. Um, I'm Sherry Richardson, and I'm the chair of the Governmental Affairs Committee. I've been the chair for one year, and most of the time uh, feel extremely new at this job. So, um, But I, I have some really wonderful people on the committee, and uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be doing this. So who wants to go next? I'm Doreen Cornwell. I live in Seattle. I'm a member of United Blind of Seattle, and I'm the vice chair, sort of acting chair of the WCB Advocacy Committee, and we collaborate a lot with the Governmental Affairs Committee, and I'm a little bit of a transportation issues maniac, so I really appreciate Barb and Larry being uh, being willing to come talk to us, um, and I hope we can um, read up and figure out what different parts of what WCB might be most meaningful as far as reviewing this plan. Thanks. And Judy? You want to go next? Sure. Um, Judy Brown. I'm a member of United Blind of Seattle, and I'm also on the advocacy committee as well. And I'm a working legally blind nurse. Who does a ton of transportation issues with because she does discharge planning. Correct. Yeah, that's true. That's cool. Um, all right. And Phil, you want to go next? Sure. My name is Phil Blyle. I'm a retired lawyer living in Oak Harbor, Washington. Been blind most of my life and really interested in transportation issues. Okay. Jim, you want to go next? Yeah, I'm Jim McIntosh, and I'm a retired information technology specialist. And my major was in urban planning years ago. So, and being visually impaired, transportation is really near and dear to us and it'll be really interesting working with the state and I'm involved with uh, what's called All Aboard Washington. That's a rail advocacy group as well as our local Sierra Club chapter which deals with transportation and land use and also the Transit Writers Union. So just done a lot with transportation over the years and I really like trains. I really like train travel. So I hope our Cascades service can return, which goes up and down the coast from Vancouver to Portland, because we really miss going to Portland by train. <laughs> okay, Jim. And Mike, you want to go next? Hey, Mike, I live in Tacoma, and I use a bucket quite a bit. Um, I've been on the committee for about a year, and it's nice to take a break from CNN and Talk to some same people. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I'm in agreement with that. Today has been nuts. All right. And David, I'm not sure which David you are. So, <laughs> Hi, Sherry. Thank you. Uh, David Egan here. Hey. I kind of like working in the background on WCB yeah. projects. I'm also a member of the uh, Snoqualmie Valley Transit uh, Coalition and serving with Doreen on the uh, King County Metro Access Advisory Group. Glad to have you, David. And um, David also has a really cool, lovely uh, golden retriever 
guide dog that I love. <laughs> well, and he's in love with Apollos. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that we have some true. stories. We have some yes, stories to share. Indeed. So, Karen. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, this is Judy real quick. I guess I probably should add, because I kind of left it out, is I'm also on the uh, King County Access to Healthcare Committee. Thank you, Judy. Okay, so uh, I would like to introduce um, Barb, and this is Barb Chamberlain, and she's the Director of Active Transportation Division of um, WashDOT. So, Barb, would you like to... Um, say just an introductory word, and then we'll introduce Larry as well. Sure. Hello, everybody. This is Barb Chamberlain, I'm now living in Olympia, used to be in Seattle, where I sometimes saw Doreen, at least at meetings, and maybe some of the rest of you. I'm very happy to be here tonight. Thank you. And we really appreciate it. And then we also have um, Larry Watkinson, and he's the deputy director, is that right, of yeah. the Office yeah. of Equal Opportunity. Mm -hmm. And Larry, you want to Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm uh, Larry Watkinson, and you already got the title. Um, I'm actually a guide dog user, um, and I'm in the waiting, actually. I will be getting Barb will hear this, I think, for the first time, um, a new dog uh, starting January 25th. Uh, uh, Charles and I are going to do an in-home training. I lost my dog about a year ago, oh. so I'm kind of anxious to... Uh, see what I can do to work on getting rid of that 2020 that I gained um, in, uh, in that respect. Day-to-day, um, -day, I am responsible for the Department of Transportation's ADA compliance. Um, and all these boards you've talked about, uh, and so I, I interface a lot with your leaderships, um, with the boards like Dion uh, from the King County uh, uh, Metro. And you're all aboard, folks. You kind of or a man going after my heart on the olive board. I, I, I love trains. And, and I will just tell you that I know some of the charter members of olive board, uh, George Barner uh, being one of them, a former commissioner for Thurston County and Rich, who used to be a pharmacist here uh, in, in Sahat. So I'm glad to hear that olive board is all aboard. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, trains are great. I grew up right next to a railroad track in Georgia, and uh, I do mean right next to it, <laughs> Judy, not a block you, away. <laughs> and Judy, thank you for being a, a first responder. I, I, you guys yes. are the lifesavers that we need in today's society, well, so thank you for that community service. You're welcome. Uh, I'm not quite a first responder anymore because I can't do critical care trauma because of my eyesight, but I now do discharge planning, but I still appreciate the shout out to everybody else. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. And um, I know I'm excited to learn more about this plan that we have. So I'm just going to turn it over to Barb to kind of give us a, an overview of it. And then um, we can go from there. I'll take it away. And thank you so much again. This is Barb. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm What I thought I would do, and I really appreciate the chance to uh, have kind of an informal discussion tonight, is give you a quick sense of the active transportation division, because that's fairly new in WashDOT. And I work a lot with Larry and he is, um, he'll chime in, I'm sure, once when he finds his control A to un, or all day to unmute, if that's what it is, um, to talk about how we work together, because it's, there's a body of work we're building together. And then the plan 
we hope moves us forward more quickly on a lot of the things we want to do. Um, and it is, I apologize for the length of the document. The document itself is a very long document and believe it or not, we made it shorter than it used to be. So, um, so it's great to discuss what, you know, what's in it and what to look for. We do have, and I know Sherry might have already sent out an email. We do have upcoming webinars where we're going to do a bit of a step through of what's in the plan and an orientation to the content and share at least a few of the highlights so that, you know, if people really want to kind of cut to the chase, they'll know their main interest is chapter three or whatever. So those are coming up as well on um, one next Wednesday and then a couple of the week after. So the active transportation division itself is a really new unit for WashDOT. Um, I really new meaning uh, my four year anniversary will be March 1st. Uh, I made it four years, Larry, I'll be vested in another year. Um, and and we didn't have an active transportation division before. What we had was a division for every other mode of transportation, like aviation and public transportation and rail freight and ports. Jim, uh, I too am a big train fan, so glad to hear you said that. And, and here we have walking and bicycling and rolling generally being inclusive of folks using any kind of an assistive mobile, mobility device. Rolling would also include somebody using a skateboard, a foot scooter, you know, a, there are so many inventions we we sort of try to keep up, but all of those count as active transportation, yet those were not represented within the organizational structure of WashDOT. And so Roger Millar, as our secretary, is somebody who straight up literally walks the talk. He walks to work. He is has he came to us from Smart Growth America. He's very conscious of the value of really well done active transportation infrastructure. And so he and others worked to create the division and I came in as the first director. So I've kind of gotten to uh, shape what, what it's supposed to do. Um, one of the first things I did was go around and ask everybody, how would this add value? What are you already doing? Where would a division at a headquarters level add to what you're doing now? And so when we were created, it was my position. And then two folks who were in the local programs division overseeing the grants that we're able to give out for safe routes to school and for the pedestrian and bicycle program, which is uh, you know, things that aren't necessarily close to a school. So we are all of 3.0 um, full-time equivalent. We say small, but mighty quite a bit. And then in each region, there's somebody who has the designation as that region office's active transportation coordinator. In most regions, that is, depending on the region, that could be 5% of their duties. It could be 10%. Northwest region, which includes the central Puget Sound area, obviously has a bigger population. So they actually have somebody who's full-time as the active transportation coordinator. But most, most parts of the state, that's not the case. They are a planner or they might be a, an engineer, project engineer, it depends. So our division ends up being both a policy development place and, and we do a lot of review of internal documents like the design manual and things like that. And then we also have been team building with those region folks to sort of shore up their work, learn from them what's going on and, and identify the things that need to be priorities to move forward. So that's been a piece of what we've done since the division was created. What I heard when I went around to all those region offices and the internal, the central headquarter divisions was, hey, we, you know, we hear Roger, we know we're supposed to be working for better active transportation. We want to do the right thing, but help us understand what you mean when you say the right thing. How would we know we're doing good work or better work? Because Washington was already doing some work, but how do we improve on that? And so what I heard again and again was decision-making tools, analysis that 
that helps us measure what we've done and make it better. And so that's really been a lot of what we've put time into over the past three some three plus years. One of the things that we actually brought out in December of 2018, really, I will say straight up with three FTE, you know, working on how do we implement something when we develop a great plan, what actually moves it into practice that if we're a big agency, 7,000 people work for Washdot. It takes a while to have the new things we develop show up in our official actions or guidance or whatever it is, but we're trying to make this sort of a cumulative effort over time. So in December of 2018, we came out with an action plan that looked focused primarily on pedestrian crossings at uncontrolled crossing locations, uncontrolled meeting, no stripe, no sign, no RRFB, no pedestrian hybrid beacon, no signal, there's nothing, you just need to cross. And those are the, that is the number one action somebody is undertaking as a pedestrian when a driver hits them and kills them. In our state, the data just tell us, you know, crossing the road is the thing. Um, driver's speed is the other thing. Those are the two biggies. And um, big contributing factor, biggies sounds very untechnical, major contributing factors. So we brought out this action plan and it points to some decision-making sort of approaches to say, based on the, what's the posted speed? How many lanes are you trying to cross? How many drivers are coming through there in a day? What does that say to us about needing more controls at specific locations? And, and focusing on those locations that are population centers, places with a lot of human activity, right? So, so we did that in December of 2018. And pretty much went straight from that into working on the active transportation plan. So the concepts from that, I would say we're working to get those into our design manual and our traffic manual. The importance of driver speed in that really has informed a lot of how we approached what's in the active transportation plan. So it's like a, a precursor that we, that we built in in a way. So we started working on the active transportation plan first by doing research into what other states were doing. What are they really putting their energy into in their plan? And it's pretty state specific. And there are some common factors of active transportation work generally, but depending on which state you are, you have different problems. We do not have Florida's pedestrian death problem. When we look at Washington statistics compared to other states, we actually have far fewer people killed than a lot of states. We do relatively better. It's still not good enough. So in looking at where crashes are occurring, what the contributing factors are, as I said, pedestrian crossing is one of the actions. Do you actually have the places to cross where they are most needed, where there is human activity, where we can expect you're gonna cross that road because there's a bus stop on the other side or the grocery store. And with respect to state routes in particular, we've had, you know, state routes would have, highways would have originally been built for people in vehicles moving quickly between towns and across the state. And then over time, we've had land use grow up around state routes. So roads that used to be kind of in the middle of emptiness and, you know, wheat fields or apple orchards, now you have subdivisions on one side and the school and the grocery store on the other side. And so we've created the conflict zones, if you will, for, again, more human activity that's not in a vehicle, and then humans coming through in vehicles. So understanding that, that that's one of the factors affecting what's happening in Washington, 
and the national research around driver speed and the importance of considering what's the appropriate posted speed limit in a location with a lot of human activity, those are also principles that then made us look around for, as we develop the plan, what tools will help us embed those principles, embed those life-saving priorities into how we understand active transportation. Another piece about how we approached the plan is the 2008 plan, which is the, the last one that we had, really, it, it brought together a lot of information. It did not point out directly the role that state routes themselves play in an overall transportation network for active transportation. It, it was, I would say it was more sort of spot oriented than network oriented, if you will. And the network is, how am I gonna get from where I start to where I need to get to? And if a state route is a thing that you have to travel along or across to get to where you're going, it needs to function as part of that network. Back to that land use change that has led to uses conflicting with vehicle traffic. So, all of that led to how we approached the plan. We said, okay, we need decision-making tools. State routes themselves have not been analyzed as elements of the overall active transportation network. And what will help us understand that network and understand where it could be improved and should be improved because the need is there. Another, I would say, important element in how we approached thinking about the plan is the pattern for saying there is a need has been pretty based on the vehicular model. You count a lot of cars going by, you say we need to do things for cars going by. So if you say we're gonna do pedestrian things where we count a lot of pedestrians, you're counting on people to just go out there whether there's something for them or not so that they could be counted so that we could identify a need. This is very chicken and egg because you might have a need to get somewhere and are we saying, Put yourself out there, walk along that side of the highway where there is nothing. And we can see the desire line when you, if you're, if you were looking at the ground and could see that, you would see a line in the dirt where somebody has walked and another person has walked and another person has walked. They're using it because they have to, not because we built a facility. And we're probably not counting that need, but it's there. It's clearly established. And then there are the people who don't travel out of necessity using active transportation. They're driving because there are no facilities, but they might be willing to walk or bike or roll to get where they're going if they could see comfortable facilities. And that's really been established with some research around bicycling in particular. The majority of people who can bicycle, physically can bicycle, say they would bike if there were comfortable facilities. You make them feel scared, they're not gonna get on a bike by choice. And so, how do you identify what makes this place look and feel and function appropriately for active transportation use? And when you do that, you will meet the needs of the necessity, walkers and riders, and you will invite the people who have the choices. And so you can get some shift, what we look for is mode shift, and one of our great uh, wonky terms in the plan. I think we tried to, to de-wonkify as much as we could, but we are looking for mode shift because for us as a transportation agency, that helps manage overall highway capacity. If somebody says, oh, I actually could bike to the grocery store. I don't have to get in my car, get on one on-ramp and use a little piece of the highway and get off at the next on-ramp, which off-ramp, which people do, 
to avoid local traffic or because the highway is the only road that gets you there. Whatever is going on for them that makes them use a car when they don't have to use a car. If we could get that kind of mode shift, we're managing overall highway capacity. So that's some of the kind of, I guess, top level thinking about how we approached the plan. We need to meet the requirements of state statute. We are directed to develop a state plan. We have to deal with traffic congestion relief. That's one of the, the things we're required to address. We have to look at how the facilities and how we coordinate with our local partners. So those are all background as well. All of this coming together led us to some tools. And what the plan does is in chapter one, there is an executive summary, I should say. In chapter one, we lay out why is it that we plan? We're directed to under state law, but what are we trying to accomplish with the plan? Where, how will this help us direct our effort and our energy? And if you're reading it, that will give you some overview to set up the rest of the, the plan, the document. Chapter two has a lot of the findings about what is the current state of affairs? What do we know about current usage? What do we know in terms of a traffic crash data? What do we know about the demographics of people who are using active transportation? And one of the things that really strongly emerged there is the importance of using an equity framework to analyze what's happening. And we've been doing that for a couple of years in our safety reporting on active transportation. We went to the census tract level. And if you look at the census tracts that have a higher percentage of households living in poverty, we have out of proportion higher numbers of fatal and serious crashes in those same census blocks. We use the demographics of the place, not the people involved in the crash, because we don't have that data. We don't know that about the individual who was hit, but we can describe the place. And crash research tells us that the majority of crashes are going to happen pretty close to where you actually live. So the place demographics are a pretty good proxy for the people demographics. So those census tracts with lower income households, well, who's going to be most reliant on using transit or active transportation to get someplace? Because they can't drive or they don't have a vehicle or you know, the household has one vehicle and that one already left today. And I, now I need to go get groceries. And so the highest need and reliance for active transportation is in the places with the least infrastructure and with higher crash numbers. So that equity framework is really built in throughout the plan. The numbers are there and the numbers are really clear and stark. And this is true nationally. It's also true in Washington. It certainly reflects our history. And that's a piece of the plan as well is to just say, we, we now more and more of us understand what happened with redlining and other decisions that affected what kind of infrastructure went there went where. So you will see that and read that in the plan as well. I'm trying to think what else is in chapter two in particular. Um, we do, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll hold that. to be a really scrambly piece for the podcast. Um, we did what we could with analysis of people with disabilities and crash data, but that is really not captured. We have one national study we could find that we point people to that has to do with uh, higher fatality for people in wheelchairs if they are hit. When they are hit, they have a much higher chance of dying um, in the impact. And you can, you can understand why that 
pardon me, but we don't have that kind of data specific to the state of Washington to say what's actually happening for anybody with a disability who's um, part of a traffic crash. So we tried to do what we could to unpack that. Uh, and we, we know we need have a lot more research that's needed. Continuing to sort of step through the plan, chapters three and four get pretty technical. And I think I might wanna stop and just ask if there are questions on the pieces that I've sort of spilled out at you at this point. And I'm going to watch, I can see if somebody- Anyone have a question? Yeah, sure. I was what I was gonna ask is, I I just unmuted, but um, do, we, do you want us to raise hand or something or should we just take a chance on it? Um, <laughs> I think you can just take a chance or so few of us. All right. All right. So um, it's really an observation. I don't think it's exactly a question. You were going through at the beginning the types of signals, and I didn't pay attention to all of them. But so what I kind of just want to know is in the plan, is there somewhere like a glossary of terms or a place to look? Because I'm sure that um, there's a lot of technical transportation jargon and acronyms and um, I sort of am aware, pay attention to that stuff, but um, it's not necessarily something everybody's going to immediately understand. So just a question is, does the plan, is there like, as part of the plan, is there any kind of a like glossary or anything like that? That's a great question, Doreen. Thanks for asking that. And, and you're making me think we do have a glossary that introduces terms we think are less well understood. One of them is active transportation. What do you mean mm -hmm. who's included in that? And when you say pedestrian, what does right. that include? Those kinds of things. So we have some of those defined. We don't have a full list of things like RRFB, Rectangular Rapid Flashing Beacon, APS, Accessible Pedestrian Signal, one you probably do know. Um, and so uh, that's a thing we might need to put in as an additional appendix. We did try in writing it to mm -hmm. avoid that. To If we use an abbreviation, we make sure we introduce it, spell it out, say level of traffic stress, and now we're going to use LTS to abbreviate it because that's a concept I'll get to. But, um, and I know Larry and I talked earlier about accessible pedestrian signals in, in particular. So I'll, I'll get to that when I get to how we're uh, doing the analysis, I think that might be a, Spot. Right. I, I think maybe I have one more question, which you might get to when you get to the APS stuff. So is the draft plan, is it intended to be, who's intended to be using it? Is it intended to be used by WashDOT or by WashDOT in consultation with like local jurisdictions, local counties or cities or transportation benefit districts? And part of why I ask has to do with accessible pedestrian signals. So if you want to just go on and do that all at the same, you know, it's like, well, they, they've come up in several conversations and it's clear that Seattle has one level of thinking, which isn't perfect, but it's better than some of the outlying areas. And so um, the question is really, you know, how do you, how do you make it so that there are accessible PEZ signals and that if somebody needs to do a request, it happens in a reasonable time like an individual request. Can I jump in here for just a second? Um, sure. When you talk about rural communities, um, right. one of the things I think that's important to learn, and then I'll have, and then Barb, I'll go back where you can answer the question about how the plan has been used. But, and, and, and actually, Doreen, you may want to have me come back 
right. and talk about ATS, um, you know, because in an hour, because there's some things I think that some learning curve that we don't always necessarily get the story out. Uh, and I want to address the, the point that you make rural. When you talk about rural, um, there's a certain percentage of that uh, and a whole lot of that um, that actually is our lights and our APS infrastructure where you have cities less than 27,000 people, we have a lot of influence because a lot of those are managed. And then when you have the interstate or the state highway system running through, some of those are managed by us too. It's called limited jurisdiction. Um, uh. where we're controlling the on-ramps and off-ramps in one of those, uh, in those scenarios. And so when we talk about rural, we want to, we want to be clear that you know that, should you be banging on my door because something's not working for you or is it really the city of uh, Marysville or if Mary, Marysville is not a good example because it's not really rural anymore, but right. is it mine, is the city Snohomish mine uh, and, and things like that. So there, I think there's some work there and I don't, Barb, I don't think, and I'll divert back to you, I don't think in your plan, at least I can't recall after reading a, a, a number of times, because uh, I have been a part of the draft reading of this plan as she has built it through um, and have had, have, have influenced uh, a, a lot of what Barb has done there. But I don't think you have talked about limited jurisdiction versus mandatory and, 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 and all those kind of things about how the structure were involved in your, I don't, I don't recall if I remember that Barb. No. Um, and Doreen, that's such a great question because I'll, I will confess completely one of our, one of the comments in our internal review was some more than one person saying, so who's the audience for this? Because the plan itself is, a, I guess, a bit of a hybrid. Mm -hmm. um, some of it is deeply technical because mm -hmm. we needed that. We needed to lay out. If we're going to use a method to describe state routes and to say they need to be changed, what method is it and why would we pick that one and and why is it a valid approach so that everybody both internally and externally could say okay we get it you're going to measure le level of traffic stress which is comprised of the following things and then right. you can identify is it getting better or getting worse and and so there's there's a piece of it the, as I said deeply technical but the it's a needs assessment which is the piece that we we get to to say these are the needs and we focused on state routes because they haven't been well examined. So it feels sort of all about WashDOT. But at the same time, we really talked a lot to local and regional planning partners and jurisdictions who said, oh, thank heavens you're looking at yourself. We can't plan for you. We can be, you know, King County parks with a regional trail network, but we come to that point where we got to cross something and that's on you. And, and if you don't, you as an agency don't, um, don't factor that in, then we're sort of stuck. We can't make you do it. And what I will say, one of the things that has ended up happening because of the kinds of things that were built in the past is we get grant requests to the pedestrian and bicycle program to fix something on WashDOT right-of-way because that is the barrier. And so mm -hmm. we're fixing the local problem by fixing the state route in uh -huh. a manner of speaking. So I think it helps us be a better partner with those local and regional jurisdictions. The other thing it does is lay out these concepts. So if you're a, like many jurisdictions in this state, you don't have a lot of planning capacity. Nobody went to any conferences last year, but you didn't even have time for the webinars. And you need a place to look to say, so what's, 
what's the best practice now? And what would I start from if I don't have a pedestrian and bicyclist plan and I'm going to write one today? You could pick up our plan and say, oh, it looks like WashDOT's using level of traffic stress and highway crossing analysis. Okay, we'll do level of traffic stress and crossing analysis. And those are good tools for any level of jurisdiction. The, you know, what they find will be different, um, but it's a, it's a bit, it's not meant to be a guidance document like our design manual, but it is a starting point for the partners we work with to say, let's all start to try to use the same language. And in fact, since we started workshopping around the state, introducing the concepts and saying, does this make sense? And, and how will this work for you, local and regional partners? Uh, Benton Franklin Council of Government, Governments is updating their active transportation plan and using level of traffic stress. And some of the others are either we're already using some variant or some application of it, or they're heading that direction. And so we'll get to that common language of saying, we need to pay attention. If it has more drivers, wider road and faster speed, all of those are problematic for active transportation. So how are you going to get through? So I hope that that sort of covered it. But yeah, we tried to make it as, I guess, generally friendly for the reader as we could. But when you get to the deeply technical, it gets deeply technical. Actually, it, it's really helpful just to know, to be honest, my my like main focus of my question was Seattle and suburban Puget Sound. And I kind of had in my head, rural Washington it's not quite a different planet, but I know nothing about it. So just even the level of information that Larry shared about who has jurisdiction is actually really helpful. Yeah. The other well, thing about to know about this plan is because it has to be a statewide plan, it does not get down to a corner at an mm -hmm. intersection and say, you need an APS here. That's the function of that regional office conversation in the local. Okay. So that's, I guess, I think the rest of the story is. Right. Um, so looking at time, I know we've got, uh, it's 20 till, and I want to give, a, I guess, the flavor of chapters three and four. If you are, again, really into the methodology, I think those are the ones you'd look at. Chapter four probably has more content of interest, I will say. Chapter three, we lay out how did we assess state routes? Why did we choose this method? And, and then how do you do it? Okay. And then there's a bunch more in appendices we didn't put out in the draft for comment because there, there's the technical, how did we get there? How do we do the math kind of stuff? But um, so chapter three walks through that level of traffic stress, um, which sounds psychological, but it's actually a quantitative evaluation of the roadway. Again, how wide, how fast, how busy, if you want to think of that as the shorthand. And then is there, if you're a bicyclist, is there a bike lane? Um, so it measures separately for bicyclists and pedestrians because the facilities might be different. You might have a sidewalk and not a bike lane, uh, or you might have a bike lane that sort of buffers the pedestrian space and it's a little better, you're a little farther from the drivers. So we did consider those as separate modes everywhere that we could. Um, and then when we get to chapter, let me see, I was gonna look at my notes on chapter three and see if there's anything else I wanna. No, another piece that we did try to point out, and it turns up in chapter three and again in chapter four, is where we don't have data that we really need to do a better job. But this is a starting point, and this is a snapshot in time of the best data that was available when we started the work. And so things like a really complete signals inventory to know mm -hmm. where we do and don't have an APS, that kind of thing. Every agency is struggling with that. Nobody has full asset data. And this is something Larry and I work on quite a bit with colleagues about how do we make sure we are really account accounting for 
the things we own as an agency so they can be managed and maintained and updated when they need to be and all of that. So the plan refers to data limitations more than once. Um, but if we had never looked, we didn't, wouldn't even know what we don't know. So I, I feel like it's, a, it's, a, it's an incremental progress, uh, process. So I'm not saying skip chapter three, but um, if you had, were allocating your time, then chapter two has the crash data and the other usage data and in anything that you might identify that we didn't, where we didn't really lay out understanding, what, what should we be examining when, when we try to characterize what's happening for active transportation? Chapter two is where we try to characterize what's happening for, for the people in the places. So chapter two is one to look at. Chapter four is the part that's labeled cost estimates, but it also really unpacks the kinds of treatments and changes that would lower that level of traffic stress that would make the place better for using active transportation. And so it gets into why do we talk about speed management? Why do we talk about the importance of crossings? Those kinds of things. So to, to explain why those are categories in the cost estimates, we really get into the what should be done um, elements. If and when funding is available, I say repeatedly as I talk about this plan, this is the where and why and how plan. This is not the how you pay for it plan, which is well above my pay grade and subject to future appropriations. And this information, by the way, I should be clear, this information wasn't out on the street and available for WashDOT to build into its budget request, for the governor to consider in putting forward his budget request. This just got out um, you know, as a really a, a public document. So this kind of information doesn't show up directly in the budgets that are under consideration now. So I just wanna be clear about that, that we see this informing future budget in, in terms of informing the scope of projects as we talk about what needs to be done, we now have more information about the need. But the cost estimates in there are not meant to imply that this is automatically in every budget request and it's this many per biennium. It's to try to get our heads around what is the scope of the need. Um, and so it just is as context for what looks like um, good size dollars. And I am scrolling through my information to make sure I touch on so we did the, the network analysis looking at state routes. We identified a place as a gap and gap sort of has air quotes around it. It's a gap if it's a level of traffic stress three or four, the highest levels of traffic stress. It's a one to four scale. And it's in a population center because that puts together that there are more people who need it and it is not as good as in other places. Level of traffic stress one is what is considered to be an all ages and abilities facility. It's most often going to be something like a shared use path or a separated trail where you really don't, you're not immediately adjacent to people moving in vehicles. Um, and I know shared use paths and trails have their own challenges, but it's not like walking along the, the edge of the highway. Once we had that gap analysis and we said there are this many miles, it's over 1600 miles of state routes in population centers that are a level of traffic stress three or four. Then we looked at if we were going to evaluate them and do some way of prioritizing where needs are greatest, where you make the most difference if you do change something, we laid out three sets of evaluation criteria. One is safety. So we look at the history of crashes. We look at level of traffic self stress itself is a proxy for being a place that um, has more potential for crash exposure. 
what are the connections to and between destinations? So if you need to get to the grocery store, you need to get to the bus stop or the train station, those are absolutely in there, Jen. Um, those, all of those intermodal links, those are um, assigned point values under the safety category. The equity category, again, we looked at that census block information or census tract information, and we looked at three population measures. We compared these to the state average and said, where are there places with relatively high numbers of people living in poverty, relatively high numbers of people with a disability, or and or relatively high numbers of Black, Indigenous, and people of color? A, a lot of places, those are the same, like that's going to point to the same census tract on all three measures, but we did measure them independently to look at, to identify what that can tell us. And as I said, crash data is going okay, the crash data shows up in those places too. Um, and then potential demand is the third category, and that looks at population density, um, proximity to schools, some of the destination information as well that um, we're, we're, we could do the most good if there's more people there to use it and potential demand is higher. So those are things you might consider too, is are these the appropriate ways of, of evaluating where a change would make a difference? And is the discussion of equity one that makes sense to you and feels appropriate? And, and did we miss something? We, you know, like it goes out for comment to make the work better, not to say we did everything per perfectly. So we definitely look for um, what we just... We want, we want to know what we really missed in putting this together. It's had a lot of internal review. We took a lot of public comment along the way, but it can always be better. And then there's a final chapter that's relatively short. It's sort of a next steps, um, you know, where do we go from here? What are some of the notable concepts that emerged out of doing all of this processing and, and thinking it through? And there are definitely a number of things in this that are new ways for WashDOT to think about its work and new ways for others as they partner with us to think about the work. The looking at population centers, which aren't just incorporated cities or towns. And that's a new, that picks up a lot of mileage. Those places where there's, it looks and feels like a town, you would swear Spanaway is a town, but Spanaway is not an incorporated city or town. Um, Vashon not incorporated. I used to live in White Center, south of um, the south end of West Seattle, not incorporated. But boy, is it a little town with, you know, pizza and groceries and then the original Full Tills ice cream shop, really important to know about that. Um, so looking at population centers helps us identify those places that really have both the existing need and, and future need that could be met if we did a better job, if there's a state route running through there. So with that, um, and I will say uh, this sort of circles back to Doreen's question, we definitely identified the importance of building on this with the local and regional partners to get that granular level of information that we just, it would have been a dream if we could have said, oh, everybody else has done their analysis. All we have to do are our spots in between and roll it up. And now we all know everything. And that's not there because those local places have not all done an active transportation plan. They have not, definitely not all applied an equity framework in thinking about how to prioritize where to do things within a, you know, everybody's got a constrained budget. How do you decide where to do something first, where the need is highest? And the highest needs were created by actions in the past. And so that's a really important, I think, point for us to make both at the beginning and the end of this is we need to do better 
um, we know we can do better. It will take money to do better. That's, that is the secret sauce here. But we now have a much greater understanding of where we could do better on the state routes with this. I think um, if I could um, mention, this is not just a document that's going to end up on some shelf somewhere and gather dust like a lot of these types of documents in past history of what Transportation Agency would um, do, um, such as our, even the Americans with Disability Transition Plan. You know, when I came there, it was in uh, four uh, four inch wide uh, binders, um, and it really did have to get dusted uh, in order for us to move into electronic format. Um, and it was the only copy around. Um, Secretary Millar um, has really committed himself to being more than just a car movement organization, to where we build a freeway to solve a problem because we're not going to build our way out of that. Um, and it's, what's gratifying about the role that Barb and I have and the commonality is, is that I think I, I got to the agency just a few uh, months before Barb did. I think I, I got there in May of 15 and Barb, I think you what, came in 16? 17. 17. And, and very quickly, Barb and I had a collegiate connection because a lot of the work that I do with ADA overlaps with what goes on with um, active transportation. Because let's assume that every pedestrian, uh, regardless of how they move, including bicycles, tricycles, uh, 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 are potentially ADA customers. And with speeding cars um, and not being able to have adequate space and trail space and, and access for folks, um, we get more ADA customers, and none of us really want that. Um, we'd like to reduce the amount of ADA-dependent customers uh, based on collision uh, from pedestrian vehicle interactions. I think that's probably important to this group as well. And that, and I, to that avail, it's important enough to Roger uh, that that Barb and I have a direct line to Roger, and uh, and we use that with respect. Um, even though we both have a respective uh, assistant secretary um, um, that we would report to, we have access to Roger. He has an interest in what we're doing and he has a knowledge base. I can guarantee you that he has read this active transportation plan. I can guarantee you that he's read our ADA plan. Um, and in fact, just last week um, while on vacation, um, sent me a text message um, and was asking, did he remember this correctly in, in, in that respect? And so it's really gratifying to have a secretary um, who is committed to this. So this is not just bureaucratic fluff and just stuff. Um, and he's, he, in his role, is trying to make it real. Um, when we talk about money, I think we, we, we need to understand how transportation happens. And we're talking 10 years, uh, a 10-year plan. We're talking a 25-year plan. And we're talking a 50-year plan. I mean, the high-speed rail corridor system, you know, that's probably 50 years away. But if you don't start talking about it now, you're never going to make it happen um, in, in that respect. And, and I do want to give a plug to Barb and her team. Um, we very much recognize that there's a collegiate partnership um, as it relates to the ADA and how we deal with um, traffic in, in general and those spaces. And so I think it's good for advocates. I think it's good for folks who choose to use alternative transportation um, as a way of life. 
And I think it's good for those who have to, for lack of the ability to be able to drive a vehicle, for whatever that reason is, to be able to have a voice in what we can do for alternative transportation uh, needs statewide. And so I, living with my own experience as a person with a disability, um, appreciate um, that the voice of, um, uh, of persons with disabilities is blueprinted into what we need to be doing as a transportation organization. And it's being talked about um, when we go to senior managers meetings, when we go to, and when we talk to the traffic division and Barb and I meet with the traffic division to talk about, you know, prioritization of uh, audio pedestrian signals. Barb and I meet with the, uh, with our colleagues in the design office where we're talking about influencing the design manual um, where we, are inputting and getting input into it. Now, having said that, um, it's important to know too that there's a culture um, that we continue to work with of folks who they have been trained through academic and through their many years experience to build and solve traffic problems for vehicles. And so Barb and I work with that and we're bringing some folks into a new culture and a new day in the agency when we go about our work. And so, Turning, I, I tell people, change in the agency is sometimes a lot slower than turning a ferry around. But then I was informed by our folks in ferry, it takes 45 seconds to do a 360 with a ferry from one end all the way to the other end. So, you know, change takes a little time, but through continued um, advocacy through um, with you folks uh, looking at these documents, giving us your input um, through leadership in the organization and, you know, and making this a priority, we, we will see some of these things happen um, over a period of time. And so I have, so I'll go back over to Barb, unless there's questions for me. Well, this is Sherry. I just want to say that I'm glad disability is not just, you know, a, a, an afterthought or a <laughs> redheaded stepchild or whatever you want to call it. So thank you very much, both of you, for, um, for making that part of the entire discussion. And, and Sherry, it very much is not. Um, and in fact, um, uh, I just came out of a meeting today. Who would ever think that transportation is about a website? Who would ever think that transportation is about having an adequate meeting platform such as Zoom and Teams? Who would ever think that transportation, uh, you know, is about welcoming you to the uh, uh, to the new Muckleteal Ferry Terminal? Yeah. Um, my predecessors in the past didn't have those roles and responsibilities. I have those roles and responsibilities, and we're influencing those outcomes. Muckleteal originally planned to have one elevator. In fact, none of them are working yet, but we're, uh, but it's in part we had can't get the inspection done. Uh, my influence after talking to constituency groups was um, more often than not at Coleman Dock, one of the elevators is down at Coleman Dock. So let's not put one elevator in. Let's put two in and reduce our odds of not having that, uh, that elevator yes. available. And so I'm looking at, not only am I looking at software acquisitions um, for public inclusion, um, but how do we accommodate our public uh, through the use of our ferry facilities? And you're going to see uh, at Muckleteal, for instance, um, it's, we have to order it. It's going to take time to get it. But we will be installing the first tactile map that will be both print, braille, and raised, uh, uh, raised that will show you an overlay of that ferry terminal it will show you the surroundings. How do you get to the sound transit uh, uh, stop, et cetera? We never had that in the Washington Ferry system. 
and and that and so those are the types of works that we're doing that may be invisible, but you know we can all agree here um, that we're only disabled if we don't have access. Yes. If we have access, we're not disabled, and yes. and I think that that's the message I taught through with the agency in all layers, um, and, and, and when I'm having conversations from from the secretary and from state representatives and 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 and, and uh, state senators, uh, you know, in, in these kind of conversations. And, and that's a big deal. We're only disabled if there's a barrier. Yeah. Does anyone have questions for Barb or Larry? Uh, this is Judy. I just have a, maybe a quick going forward question. So mm -hmm. we will look at the plan as laid out. And I realize that funding, you know, is an ongoing constant uh, issue, but, how do we move forward after we've made comments and then track what the forward progress is? Should we be contacting our local representatives? Um, what do you recommend for us to do as far as advocacy and legislative actions to help plans like this move forward in a positive way? If you want transportation to move, and I'm going to segue a little bit away from Barb's active transportation plan, but I'm going to fold it right back in. We have two years right now, and I'm not going to be. I can't get political because I'm I'm working right now. But if sure. if any indication is happening right now with Washington D.C., not 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 the violence that is occurring there today, but the the votes in Georgia very much have, is giving the new president elect uh, a majority to be able to make some decisions. And if you really want to make a difference in transportation issues right now, um, you need to get the uh, ADAC and the ADA fully implemented. Um, we have not been able to have any activity uh, in moving the whole ADAC and the whole uh, PROAG um, for moving and improving standards from 30 years ago with ADA improvements because there's been a moratorium on adopting new rules. So what do you do? Do you say, if you have to get a hold of rid of two rules in order to adopt one, so do we say we no longer need elevators and we can eliminate curb ramps, but what we're going to do is pass a new rule that says we're going to have large print on all billboards um, that of public notice. So I will tell you globally on, on a larger level, a United States level, because we follow the lead of the United States Access Board, we need to get the ADA promulgated into federal law. And then a lot of that will fall into place um, and, and states will follow because right now, PROAG in our state, it's a best practice. I push for PROAG implementation. BARB pushes for PROAG implementation. But when we get into our city and county partners and into the Transportation Improvement Board and other jurisdictions who gets to control the purse, they oftentimes will revert to the, to the minimum and they will point out to us, well, Larry, that's your best practice, but here's the minimum. I can't force them to do the best practice unless I have a specific dollar in it and I have the ability to control the purse string. So that is a critical uh, move that we need to occur. And I'll stop with that and switch over to Barb. Well, wait, before we go, because I am going to be a little clueless in some of these acronyms, what does PROAG mean? I was going to ask the same thing. <laughs> and when, it's, when I say pro, I always get it wrong. But basically, pro rag it, it would basically it's the pro it's the it's the whole 
adoption of the transportation um, accessibility for program access uh, for uh, making sure that we have adequate signage, adequate uh, access. And it, it basically is from doorstep to doorstep to making sure that your route is covered adequately with ADA, including sidewalks. Okay, so my understanding was that when the ADA became law 30 years ago, that that was already codified in law. So no. it, it's not. That's and, and, what, uh, go ahead. I'm not, I'm not understanding. So it's promulgated that you had to put in certain curb ramps and certain modifications. But, but what it, did, it didn't say is that you had to have full connections. It has said when you had an alternate, when you did an alteration that you needed to make an improvement, but it didn't say you had to go back and fix the existing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. So it's not you. So you're saying it's not retroactive, but right. Going, going forward. Okay. I, it, I get what you're saying. And there are some specific technical data, uh, like the percentage of a curb ramp versus, you know, do you use diagonal uh, crossings or do you use, you know, st uh, straight across crossings? Right. And right. how do you deal with those types of things? And so it's the technical part. And again, that's more than a five-minute conversation. Sure. But I wanted to answer it in a global, because I think the clock starts on January 20th for all of groups who benefit from the sure. American Disability Act to make sure that the federal government adopts that so that we can get some unified implementation of the ADA across the country, across all jurisdictions. The city of I, Olympia, the city of right. Seattle, they, they would have to meet those same best standards that we strive for in our agency because the law would require it. Right, and you are correct that there's different, even, even at the medical facility that I work at, the different types of crosswalks or curbs or ramps that they have are astounding and not, you can't necessarily go f uh, on a wheelchair from one area to the other without hitting a hard, a hard uh, curb. And I actually walked through the area of three years ago and pointed all those areas out, um, you know, said this is not accessible to these types of peoples, and this is not accessible to these other types of people. And it was a revelation to the administrators. And that was just on a hospital ground, not even amongst in a city area like Seattle or other city areas. So you're right. We do have to really get this standardized. We do. And if I can, I realize we're four minutes over, Barb, I, if they can allow I do have an ask for your group that would help me on another project, and I'm happy to come and talk to you about it later on. But right now, if I can, if I can take two minutes to just throw out what I'm looking for, and Barbara, I think you'll you'll remember this one. Right now, in the state of Washington, unless a crossing is marked as a closed crossing, it is legal for you to cross there. But in many circumstances, because of the width of a sidewalk or the way that it is structured there would be like a curb uh there would be a lane divider in between like on highway 99 not that you would want to cross most places on 99 it's not adequately marked and they can't always put a sign there and so i'm working on because it's not addressed under federal guidelines how do we do a tactile indicator to a person who's low and no vision um, to know that they can't cross there. And I have been working with our engineer teams to come up with what could be 
a possible solution using some other type of tactile indicator with some high contrast color that we would then educate folks to know because I can't put a sign there that's tactile that shows that the sidewalk's closing because oftentimes with a very narrow sidewalk, if I put a sign there, I create an additional barrier for a person using a wheelchair. Um, and so now you've created a barrier to solve a barrier yeah. and, and that resects. And so we're going to put together a pilot of some tactile indicators um, that would indicate to a lower no vision, don't cross here. Um, and so I, and I would appreciate your guys' input once we get some sample product and some sample ideas to get your input. And if you have experience with this type of stuff across in your travels across the country, you know, um, uh, and, and how other cities do it, I would appreciate your input. But that is one of my technical dilemmas I'm trying to deal with. And of course, guess what? Because I'm blind, everybody thinks I have the answer. I have my experience. I don't have your experience and I am not your spokesperson. I'm a person who collects your input and advocates for it. And where my experience overlaps, I can make it more personal. So um, I wanna throw that out as a possible ask of your group to maybe give us some input on. And, and again, I'll, I'll be quiet and defer back to Barb. And I just wanna thank Barb for making me aware that you were meeting tonight and allowing me to join her uh, with this group. Um, I, I just so much appreciate the work that she's doing because I think at the end of the day, we all benefit from her efforts. Larry, this is Doreen. Um, so one way to tell people not to cross, SDOT just did a bunch of stuff on Aurora on 99, and they put yellow domes in places that have no crosswalk, and I can't even, I'm not even sure whether they have a middle, a barrier in the middle, but there would be a no way in hell should you really try to cross Aurora there. And in my head, it makes perfect sense to put yellow dots on the north-south streets where there's an intersecting street and you're going to cross that street. But putting the yellow dots on the side of the, inner, the side of the corner that you would be trying to cross Aurora, that's insane. So the simplest tactical, tactile indicator would be just don't put yellow dots where you can't cross. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm sorry. That's like, I know we're over time and I could have just written Larry email off, <laughs> off list. Yeah, there you go. So, so my committee is used to being over time and, that, and that's fine, but I do want to, um, I do want to give Barb just a minute to, to have any closing remarks that she might have so that we can let her go and get on with her evening. No problem. Um, Judy, I, I appreciate your question about what to do as the, in your advocacy role. As a state employee, I can't encourage you to lobby and I can't lobby. So I can't directly say to you, go do these following things. I think advocacy groups around the state do a great job of education on the steps to follow. And this group probably already talks about them. Um, I will tell you a, a little backstory. I served in the Idaho State Legislature. I was a representative and then a senator. So I got lots of contacts from constituents. And regardless of the issue, contacting them matters on any issue, on anything. It really matters. So I, I, that's civics 101. That's not lobbying. That's saying, you know, you should speak up as a resident of the state to say. Well, that. that's, and that's, that's essentially kind of what I was asking. I mean, it, when, when we uh, see your report, are we at a, at a, 
is your report at a at a point where we can point to that and go, hey, look, this report and this is our input on this. And therefore, this is what we're advocating for at this point in Mill Creek, Linwood, Shoreline, Seattle, pick a place. I will say I've done legislative briefings saying to them, this plan is coming and it will have a lot of new information. You are absolutely free to, you know, invited by them and by us, I would think, to say you've read it and here's your thoughts on it. I'm Perfect. I mean, being careful yeah. and neutral. Yeah, know. I think I'm, so, Doreen, I you think hear that part. Let me tell I, you about a really, if you think mine is deeply technical, let me tell you about a deeply, deeply technical and, and just something to think about and to connect probably with national groups on because of the, the workload involved. But um, Larry talked about ProWag, and I always have to look up and remind myself what that stands for. It's Public Right-of-Way Accessibility Guidelines. So, <laughs> Thank you. Federal rules matter, matter, matter to state DOTs and to the locals. And so anything that has been adopted that isn't what it could be, if it's going to be updated, there will be a comment period. So that's another whole area to watch for commenting on. And okay. one thing that's out right now is quite an update to, this is a mouthful, MUTCD, the Manual the of Uniform Traffic Control Devices, everybody's favorite bedtime reading, just like my plan. <laughs> it's really long. It That is something we have to follow. We adopt the MUTCD and then we update it. And I would say in, in, we definitely do better than the MUTCD, but we can't do worse than the MUTCD. And so that governs a lot of, of decisions about signals and striping and barriers and truncated domes. And I don't know what all's addressed in there, Larry, that directly overlaps with ProWag or ADA, but it, it has a lot. Well, and it is open for public comment right now. They did actually finally get it published as a rulemaking. Who knew you could do this, but it's happening. And if ProWag were to have been adopted, it would have been line for line in the MUTCD. Engineers don't follow ProReg. They might follow the uh, the MUTCD uh, when they're doing things. And so it would have mirrored that. And also just, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, when we talk about lobby, I don't get to lobby, but I get to talk about what our agency has adopted as a best practice and say why it should be uniform across what we do as an organization. So, um, you know, you guys get to make calls to legislatures. I only get to get to go to legislators when they call and say, come talk to us. Yeah. So MUTCD commenting is open. When they published it, they put it out in March with, or I mean, sorry, in December with a 90-day comment period. And I think, I want to say the cutoff is like a month after my plan comment. Okay. It may get extended. Honestly, I saw some sort of discussion on Twitter that it might get extended because it's, there's so much in there and um, some kind of, uh, some things that there will be comments on. Let me just say um, and we will comment officially as an agency. I'm involved in that review, and so is our traffic division. And Larry, I don't know if you are too, but um, we should talk about that offline. We align uh, our through our collaboration with you, yes, and traffic division, yes, certainly. Yeah. yeah. So all kinds of great things to read, um, but really, I, it is so important to to reach out to the agencies that are putting out plans or making decisions, and tell them that you care and you're paying attention. I will mm -hmm. close with the thought that if we don't get local and regional plans incorporating the importance of active transportation and accessible complete networks, 
the work we will do at Washington on state routes can't do the whole trip. We really need it to start with our local partners as well, because that's when you go out the door that that's the first thing you're going to hit is what did the local jurisdiction build? And so if they do the work and then we are doing our work, that will that will knit together. And that will also, I would say, deepen the value of the kinds of grant applications that my division processes. They aren't all coming. We, we have an equity requirement. There is scoring for equity. But what does that mean to the local jurisdiction? And did they even start thinking about that before our grant, um, you know, before our grant requirements got published? Is that really baked into their DNA? And I think that's a fair question at every level of jurisdiction. And that will go a long way towards getting better projects and better networks. So, Barb, is there um, a website or a link to the last thing that you just, because there were so many initials, I couldn't even follow it. Oh, I, <laughs> I do not fault you for that because I kept hearing it. I will tell you a story about a friend of mine who started working in bike advocacy, and it's what finally made her buy a smartphone so that she could take it to meetings and look words up because there was something <laughs> um, Let me see. See if I can find the. There's a place to look it up. It's called Google. Yeah, yeah the place has right the now. manual, okay. the manual of uniform traffic control devices. M U T. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, well, yeah. I, I lost track of the initials and the acronyms, I, and I I wrote it I down. Work in I, I, wrote, I work in medical, which we deal in acronyms all the time. But yeah. I was if lost. you if you go to fhwa.gov. Right. You will find a tremendous amount of transportation stuff. And I will tell you, FHWA, they, 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 we follow what they say because we have, you know, about $300 million of their money coming into us um, or, or more. Um, and so have, that's a really good site. Um, you guys probably already know about ADA.gov, um, right. really good yeah. site. Um, Barb, you have a link for your transportation uh, plan is that now gone hot? Oh, it's out. Yeah, yes, that's live. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the, we originally got notice from somebody who's on the GCDE government. Right. Yeah, I got that out. Kind of find out. Barb and I both emailed them, so that they got it out. <laughs> yeah. No, it was. I was. I was like, that was very cool to know that that was happening. Um, one more question from me, Barb. The three webinars that were in that email. Is that going to be like a repeat of this content or is it because I'm kind of thinking for people who weren't on this call tonight, it might be worth just reset. I'll just resend the message and say, oh, here, if you're interested yes. in, in yeah. active transportation. This would be worth your time. Yeah. And, and yeah. it'll work in your schedule because, you know, everybody's schedule is what it is. But um. yeah, that would be great. I will say yeah, I've got slides for that. And I'm working, actually was working on those this afternoon. I'm working on making the slides as accessible as possible. And we'll, we'll archive the presentations and I'll link the PDF of the slides. Okay. It will be um, slightly more formal than I was tonight. Um, and, and I'll be stepping through chapter by chapter, a, a, you know, right. with sort of a bullet point version, I guess I would say of what's in each chapter. Um, so yeah, it's, I was scanning those slides quickly to check what I was sharing with you tonight. Right. It's it, you, it, if you've been in this, I don't know that you need to be in that. But for yeah. folks who didn't make this, yeah, that would be useful. Okay. So the other the other question is, if you're going to be screen sharing the slides, people are going to want a link or a way to download them before because the screen share is not acceptable not accessible for screen reader users. 
Okay, super. Yeah. Thank you yeah, and, Barb, and Barb is aware of that, um, just so you know, and one of the things that she, uh, she's very conscientious about is make, making, knowing that awareness. In fact, right. just before this call tonight, uh, Barb sent me, hey, I had this technical discovery what I could do to make some of these graphics more accessible. And so I will tell you, she's been really oh, no, stellar she's, on that. Um, oh, I follow I follow Barb on Twitter, and she's oh, yeah, of, it, yeah. So, well, she's a good one to follow on Twitter. But what I was going to say to you is that she will be really ready to go for low and no vision. What right. if someone needs sign language interpretation? Because I realize we have a population of deaf and hard of hearing, and deaf and hard of hearing, low and no vision. Um, if you give her advance notice, we can arrange for services. Right. Um, but if we, if we, in the moment, it's really tough, especially in the COVID virus, to have someone who's available to provide those transition services. So just yeah. be aware of that as you spread the word. We'll, we'll accommodate them, but we're going to need the time to do so. Yeah. Okay, so let me just suggest then if you both are on Twitter or if that's a good place to follow your comments and stuff, perhaps you want to reintroduce yourself for the end of this podcast and say your Twitter so people can yeah. follow you. Oh, that's right. a great idea. Barb, what is my Twitter? Because I, I, I read more than I tweet, um, but I'm, I want to get better than that. Um, uh, it's a, is, is it just at Larry Watkinson? I think is what it is. That's it, pretty funny, Larry. I think it is. Let me, I'll, I've got that tab open. Strange, but true. Do I, and I follow you. So what do I, what, I'm looking at what autofills. And I'm not a very good person. I'm not a very good leader. So I follow her. <laughs> it's Twitter. And um, my Twitter handle for anybody who cares is like my username on the email is D O R E N E F C. Um, I have another sarcastic Twitter handle, but um, we'll pass. Less, we'll, we'll um, even though it's, it's a badly behaved white cane with an irreverent name, we'll use the more professionally inspiring one. That, that'll be for another podcast. Yes, you? exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yes, an appropriate yes, professional presence, yes, yes. And Judy sounds like either a podcast producer or a heavy consumer of podcasts, because that <laughs> idea of putting in a plug, that's great. <laughs> no, it, no, that's actually really important. Like, that's the, the, the midlife vision loss, What figuring out what accommodations to ask for has been, like, part of my story. It's like, oh, I can't see the PowerPoint, but yeah. can you read out the con the contact phone number or URL or just spell your name so I can Google you. So. Right. And that, that's, that's why I wanted that to kind of end with let's reintroduce our speakers and reintroduce the best way to follow them so we can get the updates and right. so that some of us don't have to remember acronyms that are just like blowing my head right at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Barb, did, did, do you have your uh, Twitter yeah. handle? Twitter handle. handle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to connect with folks on Twitter where you can find me with at Barb Chamberlain, B-A-R-B-C-H-A-M-B-E-R-L-A-I-N. When I share news about the active transportation plan, I include the hashtag WSDOT active, WashDOT active, to try to link up the news coming out from WashDOT. And for folks interested in finding the active transportation plan where we have it linked in an online open house, if you search on WASHDOT online open houses, you will find all of the current online open houses for projects and plans that the State Department of Transportation is putting out 
You can also go to engage.wsdot.wa.gov. That's the link straight to the online open houses. Perfect. Thank My Twitter so handle is uh, hashtag Larry Watkinson. Um, you can actually reach out to me at L-A-R-R-Y period W-A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N at W-S-D-O-T dot W-A dot G-O-V. I am so appreciative of both of you coming on and and talking with us about this. And uh, it sounds like um, that we'll probably be in touch with both of you more as time goes by. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where I thought, well, I think they're probably going to be too busy and probably don't want to take time to, to talk to this small group. Uh, but I decided to take a chance. And I was so thrilled when Barb uh, called me while I was out on a walk and said, oh, I'd like to do that. So thank you very much, both of you. This podcast was made in association with Washington Council of the Blinds Newsline Publication. You can contact us at the WCBnewsline at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Credit for this production goes to podcast producer Zach Hertz, editors Heather Mears and Reginald George, and we'd like to extend a thank you to Kevin McLeod at Incomputech.com for his use of the song Life of Riley. Thank you so much for listening and tune in for our next episode or check out previous episodes.